This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. We hear an enormous amount about Afghanistan in the news, but how much do we really know about it? We may be very familiar with the places that media coverage of the war on terror has taken us, and with the stories we've heard about the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda training camps, and the cultivation of poppies for heroin there. But what's it like on the ground in Afghanistan? This week on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about Afghanistan with somebody who lives and works there. Matthew McGarry is the country representative in Afghanistan for the organization Catholic Relief Services. That organization provides services to poor and vulnerable communities in countries around the world. McGarry was in town this week speaking to donors, legislators, and other groups about CRS's work in Afghanistan, and he was at Fordham for an event celebrating the relationship between CRS and the university's International Political Economy and Development Program, of which McGarry is a graduate. I spoke with Matt McGarry in our studios. Matt McGarry, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. First of all, tell me, what is life like in Afghanistan? Well, it's uh, not as bad as one might imagine, or at least not as bad as people seem to, to presuppose. Afghanistan's obviously been in the news quite a bit since uh, since about midway through the presidential election cycle, and certainly in the last six months, and even more so in the last couple of months. But uh, to my mind, one of the things get lo- that gets lost in all those discussions is the fact that there are 30 million or so Afghans who are also extremely interested in the, the direction of their country and have you know, much more of a vested interest in, in Afghanistan than, than you or I or, or a lot of people who are having these discussions. And so, you know, day-to-day life is, is probably not that much different from any other, um, you know, developing country around the world that people, you know, have a you know have a primary interest in earning an income to be able to support their families. Uh, there's a great passion for, for education because uh, for so long, because of displacement and conflict and disruption, Afghans have... Um, on a very wide scale, been denied opportunities to learn to read and write and you know, pr- obtain a vocation or follow a profession. And so people are extremely passionate about getting their children to school. Um, you know, there is a great deal of, of insecurity, and that, that is kind of the primary concern. Um, everywhere where we work, certainly, that when we go to villages and talk to people, their, you know, their priorities are, are safe drinking water. Their priorities are being able to, to earn uh, greater income from their farmlands because about 80% of the population earns some of its income from agricultural activities. You know, their, their priorities are for, for better roads, for schools for their children. But across the board, the number one preoccupation, the number one concern is always security, just being able to, to send the kids to school in the morning and know that they're coming back or to be able to go to the market without fear of being abducted or being you know caught up in a, an IED attack or something like that so that's um, that's the one probably most significant difference but otherwise in day-to-day life is is like day-to-day life just about everywhere you work with one of the many relief organizations that works in Afghanistan Catholic mm-hmm. relief services mm-hmm. tell me what uh, what Catholic relief services does in Afghanistan sure so CRS uh, Catholic relief services, we opened up a permanent presence in Afghanistan in 2002. Uh, prior to that, we'd been providing quite a bit of support to Afghan refugees in Pakistan from our, our much older uh, Pakistan program uh, out of offices in Peshawar and Quetta. Um, but after the, the fall of the Taliban in, in 2001-2002, we, we set up the office in Herat. Also have a a smaller uh, office in Kabul for administration and logistics. Have a fairly sizable office in uh, Gore province, which is one of the most 
kind of neglected and, and uh, underserved parts of the country. And then a, our most recent office is in Bamiyan. Uh, our work focuses on four main strategic areas. The first is agriculture, primary uh, agro-enterprise, agro-business, working with the, the poorest and most vulnerable farmers that we can to try to help increase their incomes. The second area, which is very closely linked to the first, is water security, that Afghanistan is one of the most water-insecure places in the world, that there's enough rainfall uh, to support agriculture. But because of Again, conflict and displacement because of serious overgrazing of rangeland, because of serious overcultivation of limited uh, arable land, because of a harvesting of shrubs for cooking and, and heating fuel. Uh, the soil absorption capacity is actually quite low, and so there's a lot of runoff, and it, it becomes very difficult to, to, be, to make the land productive. So in order to support our agriculture programming, we also work quite a bit on soil and water conservation, and also because of the extremely limited access to safe drinking water uh, across the country, but especially in rural areas. We work quite a bit on water supply, uh, tapping mountain springs, and then setting up storage tanks, running distribution lines down into villages so that people can reliably access safe water. The third area is uh, education, that we are part of a larger consortium of uh, three other NGOs working in very close partnership with the, the Ministry of Education to provide community-based schools uh, to communities that are at least uh, three kilometers away from the closest government uh, school. In some cases, the communities are 60 or 70 kilometers away, but the minimum distance is three. And so we don't build school structures. That's not the primary impediment to, um, to education. That most, none of these communities have ever had a school building before. What is the, the, the constraint is a qualified teacher and a safe place for kids to go to school. So the, we work with the community to set up a school management committee. Uh, then we, uh, The community itself selects its teacher, who's generally the most educated person in the village. Uh, we provide a series of trainings to that person, to the school management committee, and then provide uh, classroom learning materials and individual student materials and ongoing follow-ups and monitoring. And we find that that has a, a dramatic impact on uh, both enrollment and achievement, that it, it's uh, education in Afghanistan, for, for primary education at least, is not a question of having a nice shiny school building. It's not a question of Afghans don't want their kids to go to school or Afghans are resistant to educating their girls or anything like that. It's just proximity to a classroom. And so if it's close enough for, for girls and boys to walk to, if it's a safe space, if the teacher is a trusted person, and if the, the quality of the education is good, um, people across the board send their children to school and are incredible, will, and will take great risks to make sure that they have access to that school. And then the last aspect of our programming is uh, emergency response. That because of uh, geography, because of history, Afghanistan is quite prone to earthquakes. There was one uh, just last week, um, ongoing droughts, as I had mentioned. Uh, the winters, uh, particularly in the parts of the country where we work, are e extreme in the extreme, that um, temperatures drop you know, in, in the most extreme cases, 30, 40 degrees below zero Celsius, that there will be you know, six to eight foot snowdrifts in the passes, villages get totally cut off. And so we have an ongoing emergency response capacity to uh, respond to crises as they arise. And right now, the major one that we're dealing with is the, the food price crisis from last year, in which global food prices went up significantly. Afghanistan, because of um, drought because of um, you know, insecurity is a net importer of food under the best of circumstances. And so we saw food prices triple or quadruple in a lot of parts of the country. And so while there is uh, adequate food, it's just become extremely expensive. The prices have gone back down now, but they're still higher. And so we do a lot of uh, cash for work programming in order to, uh, on the one hand, build um, productive infrastructure to reduce mitigation or to mitigate risks uh, to food insecurity in the future, but also just getting cash into people's hands so that they can buy food. 
You mentioned a couple times the um, sort of insecurity and instability of life in Afghanistan. I'm hoping that you can tell me about some of the sort of recent history of Afghanistan, if you could just start, I suppose, mm-hmm. right before the Soviet invasion. <laughs> sure. So the, the thumbnail sketch of the, the last 30 years is that um, you know, there was a, a communist government in the late 70s, which was not particularly uh, popular, did not have a lot of grassroots support. And so in order to prop up that government and uh, tamp down a, a growing insurgency in the late 70s, the, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and over the course of the next year, 10 years, uh, the next decade fought an extremely uh, destructive, um, I would say, you know, vindictive uh, war against the the, uh, the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan, which, again, it's been possible to really quantify for sure, but probably killed in the neighborhood of a, a million or so people uh, in, a, in a country that at the time, I think, had a population of 20 million or something along those lines. It displaced, uh, that particular conflict displaced about 5 million Afghans to Pakistan and uh, Iran, uh, making them, I believe, at the time, the world's largest uh, refugee population. Um, but uh, because of, you know, well, because of a variety of factors, but eventually um, the, the Afghans were victorious in that conflict and, and drove the, the Soviet Union out. Uh, shortly thereafter, the Soviet Union collapsed. And the, you know, the thinking is that a big part of that was the, the conflict in, in Afghanistan. At that time, um, the local, uh, the Afghan communist government, uh, did manage to hold on for a few more years, but they eventually were also uh, toppled and, and driven out of power. Um, and from then, from 1992 to 1996, uh, is what's generally considered to be the civil war period, at which the the victorious commanders uh, in different parts of the country you know, carved up their their fiefdoms and then proceeded to fight against one another. Um, Kabul, which had been largely spared during the during the Soviet time, the capital of the country uh, was then pretty much destroyed uh, during the, the Civil War period. And um, there was also a great deal of, I mean, you know, intense corruption and insecurity, and it was impossible to, to drive from one village to the other without hitting a series of um, extortionary checkpoints along the line. And so in response to that, uh, the Taliban movement started in the south. Uh, a series of young men who had generally been educated at, at madrasas in, in Pakistan uh, came back and were so fed up and disgusted with the, the insecurity, with the horrendous uh, state of daily life for Afghans, that they started a, a drive to, to take over uh, the country and were ultimately successful in uh, conquering most of the country, not all of it, uh, by 1996, and then essentially governed Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. And that period, I think, is quite well known at this point. The restrictions that were placed on, on women, um, you know, the constraints on education, some of the, the more conservative legal codes that, that made life in Afghanistan um, in some ways even more difficult than it had been during the Civil War period. And then, of course, after the events of September 11th, uh, 2001, uh, the United States and uh, international coalition invaded, drove out the Taliban, and uh, for the last uh, five, what was it now, seven years, Afghanistan's been governed, governed by a democratically elected government, uh, and actually their elections coming up again in, in August of this year, it looks like. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show with Matt McGarry. McGarry's the country representative for Catholic Relief Services in Afghanistan. And we're learning something about everyday life for Afghanis, the kinds of challenges people there are facing, and how organizations like CRS are working to help make people's lives better. In a few minutes, we'll hear about one unexpected and uncomfortable result of Afghanistan's wars. 
But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Matt McGarry. One of the things about CRS is that most of the staff that is on the ground Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan or in whatever country is native staff. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you? That's the only thing that allows us to be effective in what we do, that um, we have about, at this point, about 350 Afghan staff spread across the four offices covering a total of six provinces. We have about 15 international staff who uh, provide you know, some management uh, support or who provide specific technical expertise in agriculture or engineering or education, uh, depending on, on the program. But uh, what, what gives the programs continuity, what makes them sustainable, uh, what makes them even practicable. I mean, the the only reason that we're able to have the success that we've had is because we have Afghan staff who have worked with us from day one for the last six years, or we you know we have Afghan staff who speak the language, who come from the communities where that we work with, uh, who know the culture and the history, who also are you know in many cases technical experts themselves, who know you know which varieties of seeds are appropriate to the local climatic conditions, who know uh, that if you put a well in this part of the village, it's going to create a conflict. So actually, you need to set it up over here instead. So yeah, I would say without question, we wouldn't be able to do anything, uh, much less good work, if if we did not have such a, a large, uh, strong contingent of Afghan staff. Tell me just a little bit about the communities where you work. We, as a, as a rule, generally work in rural communities, that there are uh, other organizations um, that, are, that are better able to, to access urban populations. For us, uh, generally, uh, the most extreme poverty, the, the greatest need is in rural areas, that they're the most underserved, they're generally the most vulnerable. And so we work almost exclusively in small villages. Uh, the average village size is, is generally about 100 households with an average household population of six, seven people, depending on, on the part of the country. Uh, some of the villages are as small as 10 households. Some of them are as large as, as 300. It depends. But again, they're very, they're generally quite isolated that, you know, some of the villages are Several so from Herat, it's you know a couple hours of drive to the district center, and then from the district center, it's a, it's a few more hours to the village, and then if it's in a more mountainous area, it can be an hour, you know, an hour and a half walk up to you know to the village center, and then an additional walk out to the the um, satellite communities from that village. Uh, they're they're villages that have seen again an enormous amount of conflict and displacement over over the last thirty years. That um, many of our villagers were displaced to Iran at one point or another were displaced to other parts of Afghanistan. Some have come home recently, some have uh, come home longer ago, but uh, they uh, are across the board, I would say, you know, extremely resilient. Um, they've uh, shown you know incredible ingenuity and, and strength and, and adaptability to, to be able to, to survive over, over this period of, uh, of the last 30 years. And they're also incredibly, um, generally, I would say, incredibly committed to rebuilding uh, their country. That again, uh, all of our projects require some degree of community contribution. That we don't just uh, roll in with a construction company, build a bridge, and then go, or we don't show up with our, our contractor and distribute you know, however many metric tons of seeds and then go. That there's always a an extended period of community mobilization, and then the communities typically contribute between 15 and 20 percent of the value of the project, either through labor or through materials 
officials or upkeep or things like that. And that, again, is, is what makes the project successful. We, we think of ourselves as, as facilitators, as, as support, um, but we're not there to, to tell people how things need to be done to, to show them the light or, or guide them on the way. That It's, it's a really a collaborative partnership with the communities. And um, without that, uh, you know, everything that we attempt to do would be doomed to failure. When I started reading about um, Catholic Relief Services in Afghanistan, it occurred to me that you are a faith-based organization operating Mm -hmm. in a country that is almost entirely of a different faith. What is that like? It's not as big a deal as as one might suppose uh, that we're... As an agency, CRS around the world, uh, our guiding principles is that we work based on need, uh, not on creed, that we're not a proselytizing organization. That's not our mission. It's not our mandate. That Our job is to provide relief and development uh, to uh, poor and marginalized people around the world. Um, so everywhere we work, that that's how we work. And so previously I was in, in Pakistan. Before that I was in, in Sudan. Before that in Zimbabwe. And it's it's the same everywhere. In Afghanistan, it's, it's even more important because of, um, you know, the intense, deep, um, all-pervasive faith of, of the Afghan people, uh, you know, the people who we work with, uh, to do anything along those lines, uh, to cross, cross any of those lines would be extremely dangerous and unnecessary and unhelpful. So we're extremely explicit that um, that's not why, why we're there, uh, that's not what we do. Um, and, you know, again, because of the fact that 97% or whatever it is of our staff are Afghans, are Muslims, uh, you know, pray five times a day, go to mosque on Fridays, uh, understand uh, the history and the cultural sensitivities. In, in a lot of ways, we, we're a Western, you know, organization whose foundational, um, uh, who's, who's founded in, you know, by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. But in Afghanistan, we really are, in a lot of ways, an Afghan organization. What would you say are the biggest challenges of doing the work that you do in Afghanistan? Um, I mean, the, the the challenges at this point, then there are there certainly are plenty. I mean, one is you know obviously uh, insecurity is is a primary one that. Uh, for us, we, we happen to work in parts of the country that tend to be amongst the safest and most stable. And so generally we are able, uh, our staff are able to access communities or communities are able to participate in the projects. The disruptions are not as extreme as they are in other parts of the country. That said, uh, even if you know we say that Gore province is, is safer than a lot of its neighboring provinces, there are always going to be districts in Gore or villages in Gore that may become insecure for a day or a week or a month or maybe longer, depending on a lot of times those those conflicts can be purely personal, they can be purely tribal, they may have nothing to do with any anti-government element, but there's always the risk of our being caught up in the middle of it or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we are extremely conservative in our security protocols. We're also extremely reliant on community acceptance, that we don't have armed guards, we don't travel around in armored vehicles, uh, we, you know, we respect humanitarian principles. And so the thing that, that keeps us safe is the, that acceptance, that, that welcoming of the communities where we work. There are always still risks involved, and we try to mitigate them, mitigate against them. So that, that's the primary uh, challenge. You know, another is, is the fact, uh, in some ways, as compared to other countries, it's nice that Afghanistan is such a um, priority for the international community that it gets so much attention. Uh, it, it creates a an easier um, 
donor environment in some ways. It means that you know it's there's much more receptivity to to our message uh, back in the states. I mean, I doubt I'd be being interviewed if I was the CR in Gambia or something like that. You know, there's just there's a tremendous amount of interest in Afghanistan. That can be a double-edged sword, obviously, because a lot of other organizations or um, stakeholders have different interests than we do. That um, our interest in Afghanistan is doing development for the sake of development. That we are a relief and development organization. We are focused on poverty alleviation, on providing people tools and resources to make changes in their own lives if they choose to make those changes. We're not a security organization. We're not. Um, you know, that's not our primary motivation. And for a lot of other actors, it is. And also just, you know, the, the last major challenge, I suppose, would be the fact that given 30 years of displacement and conflict, uh, violence, a 30-year gap in any sort of consistent uh, development work, there are hurdles all over the place in terms of, you know, so the the rangeland is is overgrazed and the the farmland is overcultivated and there isn't a reliable water structure in place and so you know if we set up a, a community based school and there's no reliable water source in that village then children and teachers are much more liable to get sick and not attend school and and that sort of thing so just the because of the the degradation of infrastructure and the you know the psychological trauma and the everything else that's gone on over the last thirty years, there are more obstacles, there are more hurdles than there might be in you know in a neighboring country. Let's say. What would you pinpoint as like some of your biggest successes? Um, for us, I mean, we like to think that the, that the work that we're doing has been pretty successful. We think that you know in in Western Afghanistan, certainly where we are, we think that you know our work. Um, can serve as, you know, an example to a degree or another. I mean, the, the biggest one is the fact that, uh, you know, after six years we have projects that, that are sustainable, that, uh, that are still going on. We have a, a high degree of community participation, community collaboration, community buy-in. Um, you know, if we look purely at outputs, there are 12,000 children uh, in Western Afghanistan who can access uh, primary education because of the work of CRS and our partners. Um, there are about, at this point, I think 28,000 farmers who have been, you know, passed through trainings or had access to greenhouses or are organized into growers associations so that they're able to create economies of scale and sell their produce to uh, directly to commercial vendors rather than through intermediaries or middlemen, they earn a greater income. There are villages that have access to uh, safe and clean drinking water within, I think it's 50 meters of their home, uh, the tap stands, so that the, the women and children don't necessarily have to spend an hour and a half going to collect water that is also not clean and those, those sorts of things. So, you know, programmatically, there, there's a lot of success in terms of, you know, having achieved the, the objectives, having cre- you know, created the outputs. I think in terms of impact as well, we've, we've had a great deal of success that we don't just look at, you know, this many farmers served or this many villages covered. Or um, we also, you know, for our farmers, we look at how much income are they actually able to generate through the, the programs that they participate in. And for the children who are attending the schools, are they actually learning anything? And are the teachers becoming stronger through these series of trainings and for the the water work has uh, has the has the yield of land increased uh, not just you know how many hectares have been irrigated but what's the output of that land now versus at the beginning and i think pretty consistently those impact indicators show that you know we're we're achieving the targets but the work is also doing something but ultimately i think the the most important success for us is the fact that we 
um, continue to be welcomed in the places where we work. We continue to to have a, a very good name, I would say, with with our beneficiaries, with our staff, with um, you know, counterparts in other organizations or the government or elsewhere. I think that CRS in, in Afghanistan is known as a, a good place to work as an organization that's actually achieving something that kind of puts its money where its mouth is, so to speak. And, and for us, I think that's probably the most satisfying thing. Is there one sort of image that you would like to leave people with? Um, hmm. There are so many where to start. I think one one story that I've told quite a bit, um, and again, it gets back to some of the, the education issues, that one of the things I, I do hear a lot when I come back is, you know, oh, do, do Afghans really care about education? I thought, you know, they I thought nobody wanted to send their girls to school. I thought they, you know, they just wanted the boys to tend livestock or, you know, earn income for the families. Uh, does does that actually make any difference to people? And so the story I tell is, is one of the the schools where uh, we're operate one of the many schools where we're su- that we're supporting uh, received one of these night letters where you know it said stop sending your kids to school, stop working with a Western organization or whatever it is. And uh, the community's response when we came to the to visit with them and say, look, you know, this is a little bit worse. And let, let's slow things down for a while. Let, let's close the school down until we figure out what's going on. Well, the response was, uh, no, uh, we don't care if they kill us. We don't care if they kill our kids. But this is our school, and, and no one's taking that away from us, that we all missed out on the opportunity to, to learn to read and write. And there's no way that anyone's going to rob our children of that opportunity as well. And so we had an ongoing dialogue and said, okay, but let, let's close it down for a little bit anyhow. And so we did. Uh, we took a couple of weeks and let the community go back and and have a series of conversations with who they thought might have left the letter, who they thought might be um, upset about the school. And after a couple of weeks, you know, we got a call and said, all right, it's sorted out. Go ahead and come back. And so it's one very small example, but uh, there are many, many stories like that across the board for education, for agriculture, for for water work, for the emergency response, where uh, Afghans make incredible sacrifices, take uh, risks that are you know beyond my comprehension, certainly, um, not just for themselves, but for uh, the benefit of their children. And it's it's cliche and a little bit hokey, but people do consistently say that, you know, want want my kids to have a better life than I did. But also for something even even bigger than that, that they they do uh, want to rebuild their their villages, their districts, their provinces, their their country, that there there's an incredible deal of pride and commitment. Um, to Afghanistan, to to building a better tomorrow, and uh, that's something that that should not be overlooked or forgotten in larger strategic discussions or considerations of the future of Afghanistan. Matthew McGarry is the country representative for Catholic Relief Services in Afghanistan. Matt, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look into the world of umpires. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, we have this look at one unexpected result of the violence and instability that have plagued Afghanistan since the Soviet occupation. From producer Susan Barrett-Price. We have a rug from Afghanistan made by the Turkmen tribe. At first glance, it's a typical design about four by six, wool dyed with shades of brown and indigo. It has decorated borders and a row of medallions down the middle. The field motifs, little doodads between the borders and the center medallions, are small and pleasing. But wait a minute, look closer. Those doodads are not flowers. 
They are hand grenades, helicopters, and AK-47s. This is a war rug produced in the 1980s, sometime during Afghanistan's struggle against the Soviet Union. I stare into it. It is beautiful, it is horrifying. Maybe like rap poetry and graffiti, it shows the crossroads between art and the hood. What makes it more powerful for me is the realization that these rugs are made by women and their little girls. The Turkmens are traders and sheep herding nomads. They live in yurts, round tents with walls of woolen felt on collapsible wooden frames. Weaving is a woman's art done without paper patterns. They use horizontal looms to weave the rugs and wall hangings that keep the yurts warm and that they can also sell at the local bazaar. Girls learn this art at their mother's sides. You know, I can't help visualizing giggling little girls squatting over looms, knotting yarn into designs of war. When my niece Becky was a kid, she decorated boxes with magazine cutouts. In middle America, her icons were shampoo bottles and athletic shoes, not hand grenades and rocket launchers. I read where these war rugs became popular when Soviet army officers brought them home as souvenirs. I wonder what the Turkmen girls of Afghanistan are weaving today. That piece from producer Susan Barrett-Price. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.